I have a confession to make. I can't find anything in our apartment. Julie, by comparison, knows where everything is in our apartment. I don't know how she does this, but it's astounding. It's like she has this catalog, this file in her head that she can access just like that, knows where everything is. She can be out of town. I can be looking for something in the apartment that I last used. And I can call her up and say, Julie, where is this or that? And she'll say, well, go in the kitchen and look in the third drawer from the left. And underneath the purple envelope, there you'll find it. Well, I had just looked there. But she tells me to look there. And wouldn't you know it, there it is. How do they do that? So what I was looking for was right there. I had already overlooked it. It was just out of my sight. God is not unlike that. The God that we worship, we see evidence of Him, but we don't see Him every day walking around during the week. We don't see Him in every moment, but He's always there just out of our sight. 735 years before Jesus was born, Ahaz became king of Judah. He proved to be not a very good king. Evidenced by this, one of the first things he did when he assumed the kingship was he made this political alliance with the nation of Assyria. Here's why. Assyria at that point was the biggest, baddest nation in the world and they were stumping around all that part of the known world taking over one nation after the other. So King Uzziah decided that it would be smart to become one of their subservient states by choice. Maybe they would go easier on them. I mean, after all, Assyria was just this war machine. They had spears and, and soldiers too many to number. They had horses and, and chariots, all the things that would make them undefeatable by a nation like Israel. So King Ahaz decided to go ahead and make an alliance with them. Here's why that was a bad thing. The king of Judah was supposed to lead the people of God in Judah, not only politically, but also spiritually. Spiritually, the king was charged to make sure that the people of Judah trusted for their sustenance, for their security in God and God alone. Well, you can see how that this Alliance with Assyria would mean they were trusting not in God, but in the nation of Assyria. They were trusting in the chariots and the soldiers and the spears of, of Assyria, these things they could see, more so than they were trusting in the God who formed them that they couldn't see. In the midst of this, God gives the prophet Isaiah... A vision. 
the God that we usually can't see throughout most of our days suddenly became visible in this vision to Isaiah. He could see him high and lifted. It was, it was an amazing, awe-inspiring vision of the one God that usually exists outside of our sight, but all of a sudden Isaiah could see him. And as part of the interchange in this vision, God asked a question that was clearly intended for Isaiah. And the question was, who will go for me? I got a job that needs doing. Now, he doesn't even say at this point what the job is. God doesn't. But without even knowing what the job is, Isaiah in his enthusiasm says, well, I'll go. Don't know what the job is yet, but Lord, you need it doing, I'll do it. I'll go. Who will go for me? You know, when we agree to go where God sends, when we see Him and His majesty going, where He sends us to go can be a very inconvenient thing. It can even be dangerous. Here was the job that God had for Isaiah. The job was this, go and stand before the king, go and stand before Ahaz and tell him that this alliance with the nation of Assyria, though politically expedient, is affrontive to me. It's, it's just a bad idea. Now, here's what we know about kings across history who have absolute rule. They don't like opinions other than their own. So for Isaiah to dare to go and stand before King Ahaz and say, King, this idea that you got with that Assyria alliance, that, that's a bad, bad thing. That was dangerous. That could have cost Isaiah... Everything. It would have been easier for him to just stay home, not go. Isaiah, I would imagine, could have comforted himself with the thought of, well, you know, this idea and this plan that Ahaz is putting in motion to align with Assyria and to become a servant state to them, well, it does politically make sense because, after all, they got these... Horses and soldiers, how can we possibly say no to that? So politically, it makes sense. He could have comforted himself, Isaiah could have, with thoughts like that. As he stayed home. Seeing this God that exists just out of our sight, when we do get that glimpse of him, it can... Call your life in places that might not be easy. So today, for all of us in general and our graduates in specific, who will go for God? I was growing up in Chapel Hill I went for a number of years to a preschool. That, I think they call it preschool now. I think it was daycare back in, 
in my day. And this was back before, there was no kindergarten back in, in those days. This was before that. You just started public school with first grade. So I was in, uh, I think, my third year of daycare there in Chapel Hill. I was in the five-year-old class. That was the oldest class in this daycare. So we were like the seniors, this five-year-old group. We were like the seniors in this daycare. And this could be a, 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 an interesting bunch of, of five-year-olds that we had for whatever reason in this particular class. I remember one day this new kid came into our class. The teacher had to go out of the room at some point in the day for a reason I don't now remember. But some of the young ones in this five-year-old class decided that it was the thing to do to pick on the new kid. And so a number of them, and some of these were my friends, they surrounded this new kid and they started giving him a very hard time. The new kid started crying, but that didn't back them off. It seemed to invite them forward even more. I remember watching this unfold and thinking, now this isn't right. We really shouldn't do this. I suppose I felt the right things, that this just wasn't right, but I didn't do anything. After all, these were my friends, and I wanted somebody to sit with at lunch and somebody to play with at, at, at recess, so I had something to lose by stepping in and, and trying to put a stop to this thing. So I didn't join in, but I didn't help either. Who will go for me? It was Gino who took the risk, who bravely stepped through the circle of the five-year-olds and, and, and put his arm around the new kid that he had just now met and said to his friends, whose friendship he was risking in that moment, and he said, no, we're not going to do this. Who will go for me? While I wasn't willing to risk the friends that I could see in favor of doing what's right, Gino was. Maybe even his five-year-old saw something in that moment of the God who exists just outside of our sight who bids us to go for him. Don't spend your life looking back on what you wish you would have done, but didn't. In 1987, I became the pastor of Fair Bluff United Methodist Church. I was actually pastoring two Methodist churches at the same time. When you only work typically one hour a week, you can add another hour a week to that, and it's not that big a deal. So it, it worked out just fine. It was interesting to hear the story of how Fair Bluff United Methodist Church got its start. It started back before the Civil War this way. There was a community of Fair Bluff that not only had no Methodist church, it had no church of any type in it. Well, there was this Methodist church about 12, 10 miles north across the swamp just into Robeson County in the small town of Marietta. It was being pastored by 
a Methodist pastor named John Olive. He heard that there was no church, nobody preaching Jesus in the community of Fair Bluff, about 10 miles away through some of the thickest swamp that God ever made. And there was no road, so thick you couldn't even get a boat through there. On foot or horseback was the only way. It was dangerous. There's things that live in the swamp that you might not want to encounter, but he set all that self-convenience aside and answered God's call, who will go for me? So they tell the story of John Olive rolling up his pants leg and, and wading and sometimes swimming through 10 miles of swampland to tell somebody about Jesus. Going for him isn't always easy, but that's always where the blessings are. Sometimes this business of seeing God and, and answering the question he always puts to us, who will go for me, calls us to set aside our life of, of self-convenience and, and chasing status and, and funding and, and all that. It would have been easier for Gino and John to just stay home. Just stay and work where they were. It'll call us to, to sacrifice. On this particular weekend, as our nation remembers those who have given their lives in service to their country, stories of sacrifice come pretty easy. Of setting aside convenience that you can see. To live for other concepts like, oh, I don't know, freedom. Nancy Sullivan King wrote a story for Guidepost magazine. And she wrote this story about her uncle who had died several years before she was born, so she never knew him. But her family, particularly her grandmother, this gentleman's mom, remembered him well. They treated him and talked about him like a hero. Now, her, her grandmother had other sons that were still living, and even they spoke of him in reverential, hero-like terms. And she never quite understood why until she was about 16, and yet another Memorial Day had come. As she tells the story, the parade had come and gone, as it did every year. And then, as they did every year, they gathered at her grandmother's house, the family did for a Memorial Day family gathering. This year was a little bit different. Nancy finally got up the courage to ask her grandmother, why is my uncle, your deceased son, treated as such a hero? What, what is that all about? I don't know the story. Her grandmother, without a word, got up and left the room, went into a bedroom, came back just a moment later. It was clear where she, that she knew very well where it was that she kept what she was after. She came back into the room and handed Nancy a box. Nancy opened the box, and the first thing she found was a letter from the Secretary of State of the United States dated October 13, 1944. And it began with these words. We regret to inform you that your son, 
Lord Heitzman died in Italy in combat. In the box there was also a mud-caked wallet along with a watch that had never been wound again. There was a metal shaped like a heart that was hung by a purple ribbon. And in the very bottom of the box was a deed to her house. The grandmother then explained that the house was paid off when the family was not sure it could. With the money that Lloyd, though dying young, had managed to save for his mom and that they received upon his death. Now we need to add to his story this. He was not drafted, he volunteered. What might it have been like had he decided to stay home? Perhaps he could have married his high school sweetheart. Her name was Marie. By now, perhaps there would have been children and even grandchildren. And all that would have been fine and good. But his life was made quite significant by what he sacrificed for. By what he put self-interest and inconvenience aside for. Here's the thing for us today. All of us give our lives for something. I, that happens. We just get up in the morning and today will be one more day gone that, that I have given for something. So giving our lives away is really not the question. We're going to do that. The question is, what will we give our lives for? We can spend our lives chasing self-interest and money and status. We can feather our own nest. We can metaphorically stay home and just let the rest of the world take care of itself. And the advantage of that is that I can see the success I get. I can measure the money I get. I can examine and see if I have more status now than I did last year at this time. I can measure that. I can see it. Or I can live for the God who exists just out of my sight. And if I decide to do that, there is a question that God always puts to those who decide to live their lives for Him. And that question is this, who will go for me? He never leaves us where He finds us. Who will go for me? Who will live not for self-interest, but for me? Who will be bold enough to stand before places of power, the king or my company, or my family as we gather around and family decisions are made and say, you know, that alliance that we're about to make over here, I, I just, I, I don't know. It's tough to stand against our enemies. It's even harder to stand against our friends, isn't it? Who will go for me? Who will stand up to the friends when the conversation turns on one who's conveniently not there and it turns in a way that may not be the most kind? Who will go for me? Who will stand and say, you know, guys, we just, we don't need to do this. Who will go and be light for Jesus in unlikely places that might be hard to get to, that 
might be on the other side of a swamp from where I'm standing. It might be inconvenient. Who will go for me? Who will live their lives not for self-interest, but for the God who made us and still calls us, who lives just out of our sight? Who will set convenience aside and answer God's call, saying, Lord, here am I. I'll go. I wonder who. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.